All right, guys, Christmas season around. Our partners are great Christmas presents as well. Any day, cookware, there's 10% off, especially our IO collection that's matte black. You can go to cookanyday.com and put in promo code DAVE. Athletic Brewing, drink a lot of those on ice. During the holiday season, there's a lot of peer pressure to drink socially. I am drinking. I can drink alcohol. It's not an issue, but I do prefer drinking Athletic Brewing even when I'm not out. It's just a delicious beverage. You can go to athleticbrewing.com, put promo code ATHLETICGIFT20 for 20% off. Athletic Brewing shipped directly to your door. Cometeer Coffee, a fantastic gift. The gift that I would like, that is some of the best coffee around that you can just defrost immediately and have one of the best cups of coffee you can make. $40 off your first two orders when you go to cometeer.com, put in the promo code CHANG, cometeer.com slash CHANG, 10% off all Momofuku items. You can visit most of your great supermarkets and we are available. We have our chili crunches, our instant noodles that are air dried, but our full range of products are full suite available at shop.momofuku.com. I made a terrific roast pork. Uh, I've been cooking a lot of pork, not a surprise. There's phases where I get a little sick of cooking with pork, but I, I just bought a new smoker and I've been adding garlic salt, garlic powder, onion powder to my savory salt. You can also use any of the spicy or tingly salt, a little sugar, and I literally coat my pork butt in that, and I cooked that at about 250-275 for about five hours on the smoker. It is perfect. I am no longer going to go back to a pulled pork where you just you can rip it apart with your hands. I want to cook the pork where I can slice it, where there's texture and chew, and uh, it's really great for some. So you can buy those salts at shop.momofuku.com and get 10% off when you put DOMO10, D-O-M-O-10, as your discount code. All right, guys. Those are some good Christmas presents. Also, friend of Dave at East Fork Pottery, 15% off the pottery we use in our studio and some of our restaurants. East Fork Pottery, made in North Carolina. Friend of Dave for 15% off. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Dumbo Media. Thank you, Alatango, as always. I'm in New York right now. Um, we're recording this a week before. We're, we're just trying to bank a few podcasts as I'm on the road. I'm currently in New York looking over the Hudson River. Got here early this morning. And I am going to tape a few things for Amazon. We've talked about that a lot. And then I'm on my way to Abu Dhabi for work and another F1 race. So we'll probably do another one when I'm abroad in United Arab Emirates. On the way over here, I took the red eye, 1130 red eye from LA to JFK. And I put my son Hugo down and he said something that like made me extremely sad. And, and I think I was really emotional because of an unfortunate bit of information I'll explain to. Um, he's like, he gets out of bed because usually I have to wait till he falls asleep and he gets out of bed and I'm sitting in a chair and he crawls into my lap and he goes, dad, so you're leaving tonight, huh? And I said, yeah. And he's like, you never get to play with me anymore. You're always working. And I was like, shit. And I thought to myself, like, I thought I would make enough changes where I wasn't going to do all this travel and all the work. And even still, you know, Hugo turned one years old at the beginning of the pandemic. So for all he knows, I've been at home for most of his life. And I got to say, out of the shittiness of the pandemic, that was certainly a positive. 
completely altered my reality in a positive way. It totally shifted my focus in terms of what I wanted to do work-wise. Expressing myself through food and restaurants were no longer the goal. There's a lot of reasons, but clearly that was the by far the biggest reason was trying to carve out a life and knowing that there were things more important. The restaurants, my work in food were no longer my central purpose in life. And uh, I, I, I'm not going to say that it was the birth of my son. It took me the world, world shutting down for me to realize that. And we were blessed to have another son. And when he said that, it dawned on me that I've been so busy with work. I have been traveling a tremendous amount. And that he says, I understand, Dad. You, you got to work. He's saying all these things to me. He's four years old. And it just crushed me. And I said, you know, I'll, I'll try to make whatever changes I can. I said, this this travel period is going to end soon. And, and you know, I'll, I'll be back home to spend as much time and to play with you as much as possible. And then, you know, he said a few other things that I won't share that was really, like, sobering. I'll just say that. And it really put into some focus what is a priority. And, you know, I got to say, like, I, I'm doing all of these things. I am blessed. I'm so excited to be doing Amazon. I'm so excited to be doing all these things for Major Domo Studio. I'm excited to be in New York. I'm excited to go to Dubai. And in a way, everyone's been asking me like, oh, like you're traveling again. And I got to say, like, as excited as I am, it's not what I want to be doing. I don't want to travel internationally as much as I used to. I was on the road 150 days a year. Bourdain was on the road almost 300 days a year. There's a lot of changes I wanted to make in my life to not have a lot of those same similarities. And I was thinking, what do I need to do? When it is, when is it enough? I, I don't know. But he's like, mommy's always busy and, you know, like grandma and grandpa, they're staying with us and they're playing with me. But it's like, I just, he's like, dad, I just want you to play with me. And I was like, fuck. It totally crushed me. And I can't get that out of my head, especially since, you know, and this is why it was sort of um, very top of mind. A good friend of mine I haven't seen in a long time, Daniel Sauer and his wife, Winona. They own a restaurant slash sandwich shop in Martha's Vineyard called 7A Foods. Dan Sauer was one of the first people that he taught me Garmanger Station at Kraft. He was from Montana. He's a great cook. Worked for Marco Canora on the vineyard. Moved with Marco Canora when Marco opened up Hearth. And I saw on social media, and I have not reached out to Dan because the funeral just happened for their son, Waylon, who passed in a car accident, tragically. And I know, I know Dan loved Dan and Winona loved their son more than anything. And I was thinking to myself, God forbid anything happened to Hugo, but like, how shitty would it be to not appreciate the time that I have because I was too busy working? You can't control the future. You can't prevent terrible shit from happening, but you can be present and you can do your best to not have regrets. So that's top of mind for me. And my heart goes out to Dan Sauer and the whole family and the whole community at Martha's Vineyard. I never got to, I, I met Waylon when he was a very small toddler and Dan, you know, I haven't kept in touch as much as I'd like, but I'm certainly a better cook and a better chef because he was there with me from the get-go and he taught me so much. And you know, his wife and his whole family, they're just fantastic people. So if you get a chance, if you stop by Martha's Vineyard, make sure to uh, support 7A and that whole family over there. And, you know, I found out about it through mutual friend and I don't even know what to say. You know, losing a child, it's got to be your worst nightmare. So, you know, I tie that in with my own son saying like, yeah, I get it, dad, you're busy now. But, you know, when you get the chance, I'd love for you to play with me. I feel like I'm playing enough with him, 
you know, I feel like a lot of parents do, you know, parents have to work. They have to help pay the bills. I don't think it's a never ever enough unless you're in an extraordinary circumstance where you don't have to work. But it got me thinking that even though I spend time with my kids, it's never enough, especially in their eyes. So there's really no point to the story other than how life has changed. You know, I, I love travel before. I loved working. I loved being away. And that's just not something I give a shit about anymore. At the same time, I do care, you know, so I'm really conflicted by it. And I just thought I'd share that. I don't really have an answer. I think that I'm in a completely uh, fortunate circumstance and I'm blessed with amazing opportunities. But, and you know, I've, I've made a lot of changes in my life and I'm not the person I was in my 20s or my 30s or even in my early 40s. And I think, if anything, having these feelings that I have right now, I view not as a negative, but as a positive. Because I would tell my psychiatrist every time I'd see him, I have a new psychiatrist now. Every time for almost 15 years, it's all about work. It's got to be work and nothing but work in the restaurants. And, you know, I, I've definitely I've definitely made some changes, you know, cutting out as much international travel as possible. We've let some of our contracts expire internationally, mainly because of the travel. And I'm here now. I'm in a city that is my home for over 20 years, almost 25 years. I wanted nothing more than to see everybody I know and to have a good time and to prepare for this week. But all I can think about is going out for a walk, as my son calls it, a refreshing walk outside, playing Legos or something like that. So, you know, as bittersweet as it is, um, I view it as positive because it is a remarkable thing for me to uh, move on with my life in ways that I never thought was possible because I was so chained to work. And the irony is I'm less chained to it than ever before. So I still got a lot of work to do. I still have a lot of work to do. I knew I do know that some of the things I'm doing right now are temporary in terms of the travel. One of the reasons we moved to LA and make a studio was I wouldn't have to travel as much and spend as much time in restaurants. But the irony is the past in a month and a half, I probably would have been at home a week, which, you know, there are many parents out there that are rarely at home or they work in the military service and they're never at home. So I understand the fortunate. Listen, I, I never saw my dad ever because he was always working. I just learned to accept that. And one of the things I vowed to myself was I would never be the kind of father my dad was to me, you know, to my own son. So that's just the public promise I'm letting everyone know. And a lot of this is just really fresh because I, I my heart goes out to Noni and uh, Dan. Like, that's tough. And I'm sure those that are listening, you might have experience or you might know somebody that's happened to it. So it's it's your a parent's worst nightmare. And um, it's a weird way to start off the show, but I thought I'd share that. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
I'm here in New York. I have an ice pack on my back. I have uh, not recovered from playing that golf pro-am and Netflix, the drive to survive. I know it's not my, <laughs> my actual uh, broken spine, um, but I'm a little concerned because if I sit down for too long, it's really hard to walk. So um, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do about my back. I'm really doing my best to avoid surgery, but I'm wondering. I'm doing Pilates. I'm doing all these things. One of the things I definitely need to do is lose more weight. But man, like I am, I'm definitely afraid of having surgery for my back. But I don't know if I can do anything but get surgery moving forward. It's keeping me. It's going to keep me locked in my hotel room. I think because it is just too much to walk, and I have to save my my back for um, Friday night or Black Friday football. I'm excited. Uh, by the time you listen to this, I'll have already visited Jet Stadium and planning on a couple fun things. So hopefully it comes out. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. I don't know. It's always weird being back in New York. It's changed so much. It feels like home, but I feel like a stranger at the same time. So anyway, we're going to get into a three things. We're going to get into bad reviews, Yelp, Elite Edition. Um, we're going to get into a theoretical dinner party, NFL edition. Things before three things. I guess it's one thought, something I've been thinking about. As I'm going to, on Friday night after the game, I'm going to try to leave MetLife Stadium. That's my one of my biggest concerns is I have a flight at 10.30 p.m., probably broadcast for Amazon's, you know, it's a three o'clock game. It's three hours. We do know that it's got to be done before six o'clock because there's a federal law that prevents professional football being played on a Friday night. So like, or six, seven, six or seven. Anyway, it's usually about 30 minutes to an hour of, if you haven't watched the end of the Amazon Thursday night football show, you should. It's hilarious. Those guys are amazing and funny. They're always trying crazy new things out. And uh, we're going to probably end it around like 7.30. So I'm just trying to figure out how I get out of the stadium. So that's been my big stress about this week, not even shooting all the live stuff, which I'm currently ignoring right now. I, I am ignoring my duties uh, <laughs> because it's stressing the fucking shit out of me going on live TV. It is so fucking stressful. I was wondering, like, I'm headed to what people say is the Middle East. I was like, what do people in Saudi Arabia or Iran, Iraq call America? Middle West? I know it sounds stupid. I mean, we've talked about this a little bit before in Ugly Delicious. And man, I'm so pissed. I forgot to do the plug because Ugly Delicious is going to be airing way too late if you listen to this. On November 22nd on TikTok, they're going to air the Thanksgiving Day episode. We talk a little bit about Ugly Delicious where the Far East, like, do they call America the Far West? Do they call Europe the Far West? That's not really what I wanted to say, per se, about the, the terminology of that. But I do think it puts into perspective how myopic and narrow you think about the world from your perspective, right? Everything sort of centers around you, at least the world. And I mean, I know not everybody does, but how we think about food, how we think about culture, it's always an extension of from where you are at. I think one of the good things about travel, for sure, is that at least if you live in America and you spend time abroad, and I'm not talking about a week or two weeks, but when you live abroad, you tend to get deprogrammed for from the rah-rah hoorayness of being an American. Listen, I, I love, I think America is the best place in the world to live. That's why I choose to live here. But having lived abroad enough, it's funny how tempered American sensibilities are abroad. 
the rest of the world doesn't view America the way America views the rest of the world. So it's interesting. I'm curious to see things. Clearly, things are not right in the world right now. And it's not just bias, you know, and the media is biased, but everyone's biased, right? When I'm in China or in Korea, particularly in Korea, when there's things that are happening, you know, newspapers don't bash America. <laughs> they bash America, you know, like American newspapers might bash one political party or be critical. But uh, it's interesting when you read international newspapers, their sentiment and perspective of what America is. So I always try to spend time when I'm abroad to to read the international newspapers. It's always interesting. And I always recommend, man, if you have the chance to live abroad, you should do it. Because not only do you literally get out of your physical bubble of the world, you get out of the the cultural understanding of what, you know, your place is in this world. So, and as, uh, and you can do that from reading newspapers, but I do think that's what can also happen with food. Right. And I always use that comp and I'm proud that when we did ugly delicious, we never edited out me spitting out the dry deer tendon when we're eating the classical banquet food, because almost every food show I know of would have edited that shit out. And I thought it was the most respectful thing to do was actually to show how wildly inadequate I was and unprepared I was for those textures. And it was also so fun to talk to those chefs because all they did was talk shit about how crunchy and fat and salty and everything was a fucking sandwich in America. It's just funny, right? It's funny to see great Chinese chefs making fun of the monotony of American food where American chefs and people might make fun of, you know, Northern Chinese food for the texture and the flavors. At the end of the day, I just wanted to remind myself that we're all the same. Everyone has the same stupid bias and the same stupid inclinations to doing, you know, whatever. So I think it's always a good reminder to to stay level-headed. So um, that's my anticipation. I'm excited to go abroad every time. And and I have not been to Abu Dhabi before. I've been to Dubai a handful of times. So I'm excited to see that. I will tell you what I've done, what I decided to do. I decided to bring my son with me too. <laughs> so he's he's gonna meet me out there. So I'm excited for that. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. That's gonna be a 14 hour plane flight for him. But I was like, fuck it, fuck it. We'll do our best to try to travel together. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing: keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Three things. Three things. Best Christmas presents I've ever received. 
The one Christmas present I think about a lot. I love Transformers so much. So much. Transformers was my entire existence <laughs> growing up. I cried. I remember crying in a barber's chair in Virginia because Optimus Prime died. <laughs> right? I was weeping, sobbing in the barber's chair. You know, I, I, I would think that I was spoiled, but I never got the things that I, I never wanted to ask for the things that, I, like, for instance, like my son has today. Clearly, he's way more spoiled than I was. But the best present I ever got was, when I was younger at least, I wanted the aerial bots. And they were Autobots planes that you could transform into. There were five of them, and they were like Voltron. You could turn them into one big, giant bot. And I remember looking at the price, and this is like 1984, 1985. And it was a, I was at, to, at Toys R Us, and it was like $27.99. And I was like, that's way too expensive. I'd even ask my mom. I said, mom, I said to myself, that's too expensive. I'd even ask my mom. I put it back because I knew how much money that was. And I was like, I oh, can't do that. And I remember what my mom bought me something, but it wasn't that. And I remember Christmas Day rolls around, and I open up a box, and my mom bought me those Aerobots. And I remember crying so much. Those tears of joy were so real because I couldn't believe my mom knew that I wanted that. And it's those things. It's those things that you don't think matter to you as a kid, but they do. Like that was the biggest fucking gift. And I know that was a lot of money at the time for my family. And I was like, fuck, like, I can't believe my mom, somehow my mom knew. I didn't even think I was, the, I believe in Santa Claus at the time, but that was like the best Christmas present as a toy that I ever received. I gotta say, <laughs> I don't remember any other Christmas gift other than that. I mean, it, you know, because almost every other time my mom would get me like socks or underwear and my aunts and uncles would always get us socks or underwear. Um, I Koreans do that as like a fucking cruel joke. I don't remember getting anything, maybe like a Game Boy, but I don't think I've ever gotten anything that I remember as being like, holy shit, that's amazing. And I, listen, for those that are giving me something amazing and I don't remember, I apologize. I apologize. I'm just saying that like everything is uh, going to be far behind that aerial bots. That's the only fucking one that I remember. That's my greatest nostalgia. So good luck with uh, trying to beat that one. But uh, I think one of the things I did, the one present I remember doing was I remember taking my family to a casino in the Bahamas. That was like my best present that I've ever given. It was the most expensive one for sure. And that was when I had made a little bit of money and I took everybody out and uh, yeah, that's about it. Another present. I can't really remember. I mean, we never did stocking stuffers either this year. Grace bought stockings and I don't know what to do or how to feel about that. So while this isn't a third thing I remember or received, this is sort of the third thing that Christmas. My family has never had stockings. My The Changs have never had stockings, ever. I always thought that was just like what white people did for Christmas. So Grace got stockings. So we put up our artificial Christmas tree and their stockings now. And I got to say, I'm a little perplexed. I don't understand it. What are you supposed to put in a stocking that you don't put under the tree? Isn't it like little knickknacks? Like smaller toys? Like, are you supposed to put food and like <laughs> beef jerky and like matchbox? Like, wh uh, uh, what do you get for an adult? Oh, yeah, I guess like candy. 
You know, like little food items. Eh. Pens. And I, I got to disagree with you on the socks and, and underwear. That's such a good gift, man. Are you kidding me? No. No, man, I want cool <laughs> shit, man. There ain't nothing cool about that. I mean, really, the best money, the best thing you can get is just money. Money is great. I mean, people say that's like not a sentimental <laughs> gift. I was like, fuck off. That's, that's a, a great, sentimental great gift. gift. <laughs> I'm going to give you unlimited optionality. I mean, you're giving me disposable <laughs> income? Fuck yeah, dude. I mean, we need to get over this. Oh, that's not a, like a thoughtful gift. Shut the fuck up. It's a great gift. For those that don't know, the real the real thing I look forward to was Sevedon on New Year's Eve. Oh, yeah. And while it's not technically New Year's, you know, we celebrated New Year's uh, for Koreans. It's a different New Year's Day. But, like, we celebrated on New Year's, like, American New Year's, like, January 1st. And um, for those that don't know, I I feel like Chinese do this on Chinese New Year. Right? They get, they get the red envelope. Koreans do this on just New Year's Day. And to me, the greatest... The, this is the, the the trifecta, right? So we would go Thanksgiving. My my father had eight brothers and sisters, and they each had you know four kids. So we had massive changs Thanksgivings. Christmas was always solo with just our family. So we would eat like pigs, eating these delicious things on Thanksgiving Day. Big get together, and then on New Year's Day, everybody would look forward to the grand event of eating. I'm I'm cutting out all the yebe the, the prayers and and stuff that I would try to ignore. But, you know, it, it, it was penance and punishment to get to the Sebedon. So basically, you know, to 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 the parents, the elders, they're sitting on the ground and then you sit down and you basically, what does it translate to? So many blessings to, or, you know, many blessings in the coming new year. Yeah. And you, you, you lay down on your knees and you bow and you, and you, you know, you get your Sebedon. You cl- you open up the envelope and you try to see how much money you've collected. You have a good idea, man. Like, I had so many relatives. I could come out as a kid with like a thousand bucks. Holy shit, that is a take. Yeah. Oh my god. Because like, not only that, I had like eight aunts and uncles, you know, grandparents, and on my mom's side, sometimes they would come, and then sometimes my second cousins would come. It was a, it was a lot. Yeah. A thousand dollars. Yeah, it was it was the best day of the year. <laughs> well, no shit. And my parents would always be like, "Well, you got to give it all to uh, church," and I'd be like, "Fuck that! <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tie this. I earned this shit. I got on my hands and knees and said a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Give me my fucking money. And oh my god! Give a a tithe." a certain percentage of this to church. Like, come on. That's ridiculous. <laughs> this is tax, tax free income. <laughs> oh my God. Did you ever compare like who got more or did, was there ever like a count in the back? Well, no, you know who got more cause you were older. Right. Yeah. Man, I used to wear, I, I used to have to wear humble, like the Korean traditional celebratory garb. And I hated that shit. It's always scratchy. Like the itchiest material. So scratchy. Ugh. You know, you might see like a, I always see like, you know, white parents with the adopted Koreans force their kids to wear hanbok sometimes. And I'm just like, <laughs> what are you doing with that to them, man? Oh, man. 
It's not all that. Hanbok's a terrible. Hanbok's look terrible on Korean dudes. Look awesome on women. I think if we had if if Hanbok's look like what women get to wear, I'd fucking wear it. Oh, there's a there's yeah, there's is definitely the most there's elaborate. So dope. Yeah, and they don't wear MC Hammer pants. So the Korean men have to wear these pants that look exactly like MC Hammer style pants, like peak MC Hammer pants, Hammer style. He stole that shit from Korean people. 100%. Yes. Or like Aladdin. You look like Aladdin without the shoes. But you got Although the there vest. are humble shoes. Yeah. You got to wear the vest. And it's like six different layers. It's oh terrible. God. Man. This is so triggering. It's terrible. <laughs> if you don't know, if you don't know, don't, don't even try to compare. Because Koreans, it's the worst. It's the worst. It's thing. the worst. The, one of the biggest events when I knew I had grown up was when I didn't have to wear a humbuck anymore and I could just wear a suit to New Year's. That's when I was like, okay, thank God. I'm finally old enough. Because like all the aunts and uncles or the uncles would all wear suits, Western suits. And so the only people wearing humbucks were the ladies. And like that day was like one of the best days ever. I was like, oh my God, I'll take a suit and tie over, over all that any day, any day, 10 times. All right, let's take a break. All right, Bad Yelp Reviews, Elite Edition. All right, Nuno's found a very funny thing about Soban. <laughs> if you don't know what Soban is, Soban is a little bit different post-pandemic. Uh, I've been told I haven't been. The menu's a little bit shorter. Things are maybe a little different, but still delicious. But Soban is a place where you get home cooking, elevated home cooking. They're very well known for their braised, Korean braised spicy black cod, their Kejang, the raw marinated crab, the cured marinated crab, and their kalbijin, sans cheese. They're, and all the panchan is very good. But like, for example, when, when director Bong was in town from Parasite, that's where he would eat all the time, right? Because that's where Korean Korean people go for Korean food in Cape Town. So Soban's great. It's super legit. And they are, they're most famous for the kejang. So what do we got here? All right. So this one's not necessarily a review. This is just a question in the community. And uh, somebody asked the question, if the customer wants the raw crab to be cooked, do you offer that option? You know, I would go to this place. We would all come. One of the late night places in New York City in the lower, like East Village was Bar Veloce. Frederick owned it. He was in Boston. It's still around. But when it opened, it was like the first like wine panini bar. And we'd get tremezzini sandwiches and get charcuterie. That's when we would go out. All the cooks, you know. People from Union Pacific. Yeah, I would say anything under 23rd Street, any of those cooks, we'd probably wind up at Barvaloche at least one night a week. What is the location? Second Avenue between like 11th and uh, 12th. We'd go there. When I first went there, I never had a real panini. I never had a tremezzini sandwich. I never even knew what a wine bar was. First time I think I had mortadella. There's a lot of things that first time I had Telegio cheese. I remember these moments. But some of the bartenders there, they, you know, they wore like the, like the classic, like I make an Italian food, like the dark coat with the hat. It's an awesome place. One of these guys name was Jeremiah and he used to be a Gramercy Tavern uh, bartender or veteran. And there was a lot of overlap with Gramercy Tavern in my world. And we would go there quite a bit. And one night I was there and it was a conversation and uh, Jeremiah said, Danny Myers ruined the industry. <laughs> I was like, what? Because I idolized Danny. He's like, Danny Meyer ruined the industry. I'm like, you know, I was too young 
he was, I can't remember who he was having the conversation with because I was a low person on the totem pole. So I was just like listening. I'm like, what? You know, this guy said something so sacrilegious. And he said that basically everyone's copied this model. It's almost like the, like the Peter Drucker of like hospitality to some degree. It's like customers always right. Enlightened hospitality. And it wasn't that Danny was wrong. What worked for Danny works for Danny, but everyone else tried to do it because it was such a powerful model for Union Square Hospitality at the time. And I think that really led Steve Hansen and Be Our Guest to adopt. So many people copied Danny. But it was the first time where you could have good food with really good service in a comfortable environment. And it was really revolutionary at the time. And it was the first time where like service and the customer was right became like a mantra to some degree. And I, it's not like the customer is always right. There's, it's not just like I'm laying down for what the customer wants, but it's, it's like, it's a, it's a philosophy to always find an opportunity to make sure the customer gets what they want, right? Within reason. I'm, I'm bastardizing it and butchering it. So apologies, but that's how I've always sort of internalized it. And so much of what Momofuku became was a, like the antithesis of enlightened hospitality, right? Because I got tired of the platitude that the customer was always right. Because I saw customers always fucking wrong, you know? Just asking for the dumbest shit happened like for their food and saying this was too salty or like this was overcooked when it wasn't. It was the beginning when I realized the customer knows jack fucking shit, really. I, I began to see cracks in the facade, right? Not everyone, but... You can't make the blanket absolute assumption that the customer's always right. I Listen, I grew up in the uh, service business. My dad had a golf retail business. I saw customers treat my family like total shit, but we were always supposed to take it. So I think a lot of it was early impressions for me where I just didn't like how people were treated by the people buying shit, especially when they were fucking wrong. I was like, it, you know, I, I just remember as a kid, people coming in being like, this, this driver that you sold me sucks. I was like, no, I saw you swinging in the back. Your swing fucking sucks. You are a horrible fucking golfer. You're the kind of golfer where nobody can play with that's good because just by merely watching you, your swing is like a Medusa. And my swing will turn into fucking stone by watching your ugly motherfucking swing. So no, don't blame the driver or the irons. You are an idiot. I was here last week when I saw the sales rep say like, I don't think you should play those blades. Those are four people that can really swing the ball, basically. And two weeks later, you're saying that uh, these are really difficult to hit. I'm like, well, it's because you suck. You are bad at golf. It is not the club's fault. That philosophy prevails in restaurants where the, the mindset of the customers never changed. All that happened is the, you know, the hardware hasn't changed. The software has changed. And if anything, now you have more pathways and entry points for the customer to air their grievances, right? Do you know who I am? I'm an elite Yelper, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to give a fucking blah, 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 blah. I would say sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes restaurants make mistakes for sure. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's certainly high percentage more often than not where the customer is absolutely dead fucking wrong. You just are. So let me give you an example for this. If you want to cook hejong, so hejong is... There's a variety of ways to make it, but usually the traditional way is a flour crab, right? And it's a specific kind of crab, mainly because the shell is so thin on a flour crab. Body, a lot of body meat, you cure it in salt, and then you make a, a kangjang solution with like, you know, jujubes, other herbs. It's very 
like a floral herbaceous umami liquid that you're curing the crab in. And it's not really raw. It's cured. You're curing it just like you would cure an egg yolk. You would say, is an egg yolk cured or is it raw? It's cured. I view it as cured. It definitely, like ceviche is cooked, right? It's cured. I mean, certainly there are kejang that I've had that's like raw, right? But I think a proper kangjang gejang is cured, right? The texture, you know that because the texture becomes a little bit more firmer and dense. So you can almost like, it almost becomes like taffy to me, right? Anything else, not that it can't be delicious, is, is, is a little bit more raw, but whatever, that's beside the point. To tell Soban, and again, I'm not saying it's option, I'm extrapolating that clearly Juju K, maybe I've said like, oh, you can't cook it? Fine, no problem, you know? I just say, can you uh, cook this? No? Okay, no problem. But I could also imagine someone saying, and if you've you know read enough Yelp reviews, you could definitely imagine seeing this. I'm from out of town, and I eat at all the best restaurants, and I've had 47 Michelin-starred meals in my life. I'm a, you know, certified eater. I'm a really great gourmand, and I can't believe that this... My boyfriend is Korean. And I can't believe, and I know Korean food, and I can't believe that they won't grill my crab. So I'm going to give them one star. So overrated. It didn't taste like kimchi that I have ever had. You know, it's like they didn't even put cheese on their kalbiji, that type of shit. To ask them to cook their crab. And this is why I say it takes fucking the media to help increase the education on people eating Korean food. And I blame this a lot on the fucking media because. You wouldn't say, hey, um, that uh, toro, tartar, can you cook that for me? Can that, that otoro, can you just cook that well done for me? Can you put that on the grill? Well, I'm sure some restaurants might do that because they serve it with fucking QP mayonnaise and a bunch of fucking sriracha. But if you go to a really legit restaurant, they're going to say, get the fuck out of here. They just are like, no, you would not do that. Just like you wouldn't go to a high-end French restaurant and say, could I get that Chateaubriand and a side of ketchup, please? You wouldn't do that shit. So if you wouldn't do it there, then do your fucking homework before you eat at a restaurant like Soba. So the reality is, you idiots writing bad reviews, it's not their fault. It's your fucking fault. Full stop. You bad service. No. You're a fucking trust fund motherfucking baby. You're the problem. Their service is fine. It's part of their culture. You got to earn that shit. I get bad service there all the time. But I'm like, I'm the problem. Don't fucking ever complain about the service. You're the fucking problem. So no. Juju, you didn't go that far. I just added on a bunch. So, sorry to use you as an example. The whole process of kangjang gejang is to not grill it or cook it or boil it. You should go to Boiling Crab, which is delicious. But this is the opposite. Hey, uh, I'm at Boiling Crab. Can I get that raw? Or can I get that cured? You want to do that? But that's what I mean. It's just like there's... Korean food, we need a hell of a lot more education. Customer is wrong most of the time. That's what I say. I don't know exactly what the percentage is, but the customer isn't right all the time. Whoever made that fucking platitude is an idiot. Literally, that was born from like Arthur Miller's traveling salesman bullshit. You know, it's like the customer is wrong 65% of the time. Wrong. Yeah. The 35% is is other variables. Okay. Whatever it is, customers, I'm just going to say, I'm always going to be an advocate and defender, public defender for restaurants. 
customers more wrong than right. That's all I'm going to say. So it sounds like you would know who's right or wrong in this next review then. All right. All right. Let's go. go. (laughs) I'll read it for you. And this is uh, Ruby, Ruby barbecue food. Uh, I think I sent you. Yeah, I sent you there. You've been there, right? I'll read it. Okay. I spent $45 in barbecue duck and roast pig. Only gives me two small ass little sauces. I asked the lady nicely in Cantonese. If I could please get two more sauces as two small sauces isn't possibly enough for 1.3 pounds of meat. Instead, she gives me attitude and tells me one pound of pork equals two sauce. Fuck this place. I won't be coming back and my family's been coming here for years. I understand small local businesses are suffering from the pandemic, but be reasonable. I'm not asking for extra meat or discount. I'm just asking for two small ass little sauces that probably cost them less than five cents. Jesus fucking Christ. I'm so pissed off. I literally took a picture of it in my car as I got it. There's a picture of the sauce in a styrofoam cup where he says, what the fuck? This sauce is for, I don't know what that is. And then he's got crispy pork. It looks delicious. Where is this from? This is from Ruby Barbecue Food in Almonte. Dude. Yeah, you went there. Ruby's, you sent me there. Yeah. This place is fucking awesome. This place is fucking awesome. And by the way, whatever the fucking lady tells me, sometimes I buy shit there. I didn't even order. Fine. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> Two small sauces. By the way, it's, it's like a hoisin, right? It's a little bit of a dip. It's a little bit of a dip. Yeah. You actually don't need that much. You don't need, you barely need it at all. Yeah. So again, Here's a good example of Custer being an idiot, grade A idiots. Listen, Ruby's, those Cantonese food, they also have good, good, uh, like sort of lunch specials, but you can order other things. I've ordered a few things from there. It's always delicious. It's always busy. The roast pork is easily the best in Los Angeles. It just is. And the angry old lady in the back, who's clearly the owner operator, I don't fuck with her. Mm -mm. Mm Mm-mm. No way. I, I, I've probably been there half a dozen times. I don't think I've ever gotten what I've ever asked for. You don't see me writing like, the fucking old lady ordered this and she, what the fuck? No, it's delicious. Whatever the fuck she gives me, I take. Because you know what? That's just the way it is, man. Also, a pound of that roast pork? Not a lot. It's not a lot. Yes. I think she's, sometimes she's shorted me on the roast pork. Sometimes she's giving me more. It doesn't matter. It's nothing so egregious where I'm like, well, this isn't delicious, you know? Dude, uh, you agree with me? I agree. This is extremely petty and like it's fucking hoisin. Like, calm down. And you shouldn't be using that much of it anymore. And that sauce is a lot in the styrofoam cup. And that's for the duck. Yeah. Dude, this place is delicious. <laughs> and you know what? Here's the deal. No one fucking cares if you don't go there anymore. <laughs> this isn't a restaurant. That needs Yelp. In fact, this is the kind of restaurant that has, if it gets lower Yelp reviews, the better it is for everybody there. One more. Okay. One more. Who's Wonton King? All right. Man, I, Steve, I feel like Stephen A. Smith. He's something, I'm, I'm dropping F-bombs. <laughs> You're just dropping bombs, period. Who's Wonton King? Lower East Side, one of my favorite restaurants in New York City. Hands down. We filmed the... Uh, the dumpling episode. I can't remember which episode we filmed there. Not delicious. I came here. It was Wonton King with a group of nine people for dinner on Saturday. We had called the day before for indoor seating and to reserve a king crab order, but was instead seated outdoor 
with management giving us no apology or explanation and stating, don't worry, don't worry, we are very professional. We decided to stay as it would be difficulty to find an alternative with such a big group. We were again surprised when we were told the king crab price was $75 a pound when I called and confirmed $60 a pound at the time of making the reservation the previous night. Our party had come from out of town to try the king crab, so we ordered anyway. The sequence of crab dishes came out with steamed legs, fried legs, then the crab fried rice last, which was poorly planned. There were no other dishes left to eat it with. That's the fucking plan. I mean, it's like, and the baseball game ended in the ninth inning with three outs. Game ended. It was under season with the rice hard. We ordered the jellyfish platter, which was a table favorite. Peking duck, walnut shrimp, and salt and pepper squid were average. Overall, the experience was poor. It's definitely a tourist place and made popular with Instagram, but not where I would go for even acceptable service or good food. I would not recommend. I've had Jamila there maybe, honestly, 16 times. I've never once had a bad meal there. It's great. I think you're wrong. I don't know what, what else to say. You're supposed to get with the rice at the end of the meal, right? That's the game. Yeah. That's... They drop it when you've eaten almost everything because that's the last thing you're supposed to eat. I don't understand. Why was it poor? Because of the service? The food looks amazing. There's no way that tasted bad. Try this at Bryant Park Holiday Market this weekend. I usually buy from the store and decided to try their food stand. It was an abysmal experience. I went in Saturday morning to try the truffle, the truffle list, the truffleist truffle cheesecake. I wanted, I waited online, told them my order, and a man who I assume was the manager standing behind the cashier asked me, are you sure you don't mean the truffle cheesecake? I responded that I wanted the truffliest truffle cheesecake, and he questioned, you know, it's $38, right? In a very rude and impatient tone, as if I looked like I couldn't afford to buy it. I paid and waited for my sandwich. Despite the interaction, I was excited to try the sandwich and was very disappointed with the flavors. It was filled to the brim with mayo, which did not match the perfumey taste of the added flowers, which didn't mesh with a pate on top. I struggled to even finish half and ended up just taking the meat and cheese out of the scraping the mayos. It's not a friendly experience and even worse. So this person, again, I'm just looking at the photo that she's rating. You can't trust a person that's going to order something like this. You just can't. I'm not joking. Like I was with Max Ng recently, you know, chef of, you know, corporate chef. Used to be former chef of Osamba. Max, one of the great chefs out there. We're at a restaurant and he ordered truffle fries. Max, you listening to this. I know you are. <laughs> out of like the 60 people that were there, he was the only person to order truffle fries. And I got to say, like, I don't know if I like Max anymore <laughs> after that. <laughs> you know, anybody that's going to go out of the way to order what looks like summer truffles. I mean, listen, I'm looking at these truffles right now. I don't even know what kind of sandwich this is. And those clearly are not black truffles or winter truffles from here. It looks like they look like summer truffles. They could be black, but even still, I don't want shaved black truffles like that, right? Like they need now. This is just an amateur. This is somebody that's like, I know, I know something. I'm going to let the world know that I'm an expert, but the reality is you don't know anything. Nobody I know that qualifies as a, a truly understanding of food, whatever order something like this. So this person's straight up the fuck out. If that's what it takes, this is what I mean. Like, I really think we need a, a driver's license for eating. All right, we're going to take a break. I'm, I, I, I'm tired of getting angry reading these. 
We're partnering with Audi on a new segment, Progress You Can Feel. The fully electric Audi Q8 e-tron brings true craftsmanship and stunning performance to your journey. With fast charging capabilities and impeccable design, Audi knows that how we get there matters. So here's a story of how I got here. Probably like 14 years ago, we started our lab. Back in the day, in the early late aughts, early aughts, with Heston Blumenthal of the Fat Duck and Ferran Agia and Mugaritz and Arzac and a bunch of other top restaurants in Europe, they all started creating labs. And out of the old office space, uh, which we had, it's not like I planned to do a lab, but we just had a place where we could just recipe test without the confines of running service. So what became as a just a place to sort of hang turned into a lab and really immediately became into a fermentation lab. At that same time, we were making things that we were stumbling upon the same things that the team at Noma was making. And a lot of those discoveries became the Noma fermented cookbook, their fermentation cookbook. But we were they had made a miso out of yellow peas and we would, we had started making things in the miso versions, uh, like light in the style of miso with pistachio. That was like the first thing we did. It was Sicilian pistachios. I remember it was like 400 fucking bucks and it was one of the best things I've ever tasted. So tamari is the pressing of when you inoculate and you steam and you ferment and the, with a, with a low salt index, when you're making miso, uh, it's really not called miso, which is why we called it hozon. I'm, I won't get into that right now. But basically, you press fermented pistachios, inoculated with aspergillus orze, otherwise known as koji, and you get this distillation, this pure essence of, of fermented pistachio. And it was unbelievably good. So a lot of that, you can actually see when we made the first season of Mind of a Chef when I was fucking around with katsuo bushi, when we made it with pork bushi. So we inoculated with uh, uh, Koji. And, you know, that theory was proved, that hypothesis that you didn't have to use bonito fish, uh, katsuo bushi, katsuo to make, you know, dashi. You could do it with other proteins that were lean. And we did it with pork. And that idea led us to make all kinds of fermented products, but we, you know, that weren't soy based. So we started doing wheat berries, rye berries, lentils, you name it, anything that was cheap that we could fuck around with, we started to ferment. And, and, Noma at the time was doing the split pea and they called it the piso. That's what they called. And that also was covered in the first season of Mind of a Chef, right? Renee and I were cooking on the houseboat. They had their lab on a houseboat and that's all documented. I feel really, you know, weird saying that, but a lot of the stuff was documented back in the day. So what I'm talking about, you can go watch for yourself uh, on PBS. But little did I know though, that of all the grains and legumes that we were fermenting, it was the humble chickpea that was going to knocked me on my ass, right? The most delicious thing was Sicilian pistachios, unequivocally so. It's just as cost prohibitive to me. But when we started to ferment chickpeas with koji, the the liquid that was pressed from that, which we called banji, which is otherwise, if you did it with um, soy, you'd get tamari, right? Was earthy and sweet. And it just, I couldn't believe the chickpea could produce flavors that were so nuanced and bright and floral, I was blown away. But what I wasn't ready for was the taste of the fermented chickpea itself. So you steam and then puree the chickpeas and shout out to, you know, Dan Felder and and Dan Burns who were instrumental at the time. And then later Ryan Miller, the chickpea tasted like Parmesan to me when you aged it and it was fermented at a certain amount. It started to taste with notes of Parmesan. That flavor 
knocked me on my ass because I didn't think you could get dairy notes, right? It really was dairy. Really did f- taste like, not exactly like Parmesan Reggiano or Pecorino, but it, it had those a similar taste to me. And that's when sort of Eureka moment hit where we could make things that were dairy-free and replace it with chickpea, fermented chickpea, which we called hozo. But the real aha moment for me happened when, you know, sometimes you just, as a, as a younger cook, you get so preoccupied trying to add more and to get more complicated. And I think to me, this was a, a, a seminal moment in at least my development as a chef, because it was the first time where I understood that if I could actually control the quality of a product by making it ourselves, so I could dial in the salt level, I could dial in the actual nuance and characteristics that we we wanted. We could manipulate certain things to get desired results of a flavor. And that's a level of cooking that I, I didn't quite understand until we could do it because we were always dependent on everyone else giving us the ingredients. This is the one time where we could actually, like an F1 race car, dial it in specifically to a dish that we wanted. It, it, it caused me to understand that I needed to actually make things as simple as possible with with the with the power of this product, both in the fermented paste form and in the distillate itself, I, I realized that we had this like unbelievable competitive advantage. And the only people I think that were doing it were Noma. And I do know that Magnus Nielsen at Favakin at the time was sort of screwing around with it. So it was it was a period of time where chefs around the world were fucking around with it. And we were all friends and we're all sharing notes with each other. And it was a big sense of discovery. And we were so excited because we were doing something that was brand new. And in my mind, no one was doing any of this stuff ever before. And I almost feel like I can say that definitively, right? I don't think anybody in the history of the world took Sicilian pistachios, very, very expensive, and steamed and inoculated them with koji. I just don't think that ever happened. I don't think they ever happened with different grains like we were doing it. But chickpea was important for us because it was very affordable. And we could coax flavors that were just unimaginably delicious. So we we messed around with it. That that became uh, a basis for a chechi e pepe. So we could just mix, you know, bucatini with the paste with some olive oil. If you added dairy, it actually became more pronounced in those cheesy flavors, but you could definitely do it vegan. So almost everything we were making at that lab was vegan which was crazy because at the time everyone thought we were just so meat heavy. So we were zigging whenever we were zagging. But the dish that I was most proud of was a dish that, you know, when you start to meditate on an ingredient that you have unlocked, like this fermented chickpea, you don't realize, again, how you're going to connect the dots to later. And I got to befriend this chef in Italy. He was a two Michelin star chef called Fulvio Perangelini. And he had a restaurant on the, the coastal region of Tuscany. Besides him being a fantastic chef, one of his most famous dishes was a gambero rosso. So that was local red shrimp that was barely cooked over a, a chickpea puree that was, uh, you know, dried, rehydrated chickpeas cooked in a very flavorful broth. And that was whipped with like olive oil forced into it. And that was really the dish. A couple other things, but it was basically chickpea puree with a very beautiful fruity spice of spicy olive oil with two like a shrimp on that puree. It was like a soup almost, surf and turf. An iconic dish that, you know, many people in America never had. And I had to do a uh I think it was a 10-year anniversary dinner for Marco Canora at Hearth and all of my mentors were there cooking. So, I wanted to do something Italian cuz you know, Marco makes a lot of Tuscan flavored food. So, I wanted to do a dish that paid homage to Italy 
that paid homage to this new technique that we had discovered that also made sense, that also tasted different, that was familiar, but different. And Fulvio's dish was a landmark dish for me because it was a dish that I always heard about. And when I tasted it, it knocked, knocked me backwards because it was so fucking simple. It was so simple, but it tasted like heaven. Because I just didn't understand how something could be so complex with almost no ingredients. It was it was like real surf and turf. It was a juxtaposition of the earth and the sea and everything that Fulvio used to serve used to be from his land. His his son was like a shepherd and the meat came from him. It was just a, a beautiful conceit. And I wanted to make a dish that was an homage to that. So I didn't want to do it exactly so that you know that chickpea flavor allowed me to be like okay what if i distilled the what if i made the fermented chickpea with koji which we called hozon and then i whipped that into actually pureed chickpea with olive oil so it's chickpea meets chickpea and then i season it with the 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 liquid distillation the tamari of the chickpea so it's all chickpea but now i'm merging japanese technique in fermentation with a Japanese, or although Aspergillus orze is mostly you know well known in Japan, I'm merging that with Japanese flavors with an Tuscan inspired dish. But I'm not going to use the shrimp because I couldn't get it, and I could get really good main uni. So that main uni, what that shrimp did, and the shrimp head, it provided this earthiness and this almost the metallic and the iodine flavor that you get from shrimp. And I recreated that with uni, so I got main uni. Again, something you see in in, in, in in Italy as well. So nothing that way I made wasn't Italian and nothing I made didn't look Japanese. Everything was neither here nor there. It, it didn't taste Italian. It didn't taste Japanese. It tasted almost exactly like an alternate reality version of Massimo's, uh, not Massimo's, Fulvio's Gambero Rosso's dish. And I served that in a little cup. The first version of it was this little Demitas espresso-like cup with the puree, a couple couple tongues of the uni, some Malden sea salt, some beautiful, I think it was Lademio olive oil, and, and, and a couple drips of the pressed chickpea, fermented chickpea, and some lemon, Meyer lemon zest. And when I tasted that, I was like, Somehow I'm eating I'm eating Fulvio's food, but it's not like it at all, right? It, it reminded the guts were Fulvio's dish, but I still have a hard time explaining it because it was a holy shit eureka moment for me because it was something that was entirely on our own. It was a dish while inspired. The technique, the product was all you know. The important parts weren't imported; they weren't you know purchased. It was all made, and that became sort of the. The, the the engine for the next like 10 years of Momofuku and really paved the way. So I, I didn't know what it was going to lead to. I didn't know that that we, we would have an office space that was temporary, that we would eventually turn into a lab. We were just sort of following our gut every step of the way. There was, it was truly organic. And then when that dish happened, I was so proud of that dish. It was a dish I, I, I have to say that I was most proud of, probably top five dish I've ever made. Because I could tell a story that made sense to me and most importantly made sense to somebody eating it. And it was a long journey to get there. And when I think about how it all happened, there's no way I could have planned it all together. And sometimes you just don't know. The design of it only unfolded itself after the fact. It was, it was, it was a beautiful thing. 
right? It had the craftsmanship, it had the finesse, it had the technique. And I think it's a dish that stands the test of time. I really do. There's progress, and then there's progress you can feel. The Audi Q8 e-tron is just one model within the Audi e-tron family of fully electric vehicles preparing for a future that is exhilarating, exciting, and thrilling. Audi knows that how we get there matters. And they have the electrified vehicles to make the journey well electrified. Audi, progress you can feel. Learn more at AudiUSA.com slash electric. All right, theoretical dinner party. We're going to do a theoretical dinner party where I'm going to invite people that I think it's going to be a potluck and they're all cooking. Oh, that's pretty cool. I like that idea. Number one, I'm going to invite Akhtar Nawab. He's got Alta Kalidad and a few other things going on. But Akhtar, a dear friend of mine from the craft days, I used to, he taught me a lot back in the day. I used to work Saturday mornings with him and he would teach me how to make stocks and sauces and butcher. Um, but there's many people that would say that Akhtar uh, is like the best cook they've ever seen. So I would say Akhtar, uh, Nawab. Two, I would, this is not any order. I would also say Paul Carmichael. So my decision I'm saying is over the years, you hear people say like, oh, I'd, I'd have them cook my last meal type of thing, right? Uh, Akhtar would be one. Paul Carmichael, late of Momofuku Seobo, no question. I've heard more people say that about Paul than not. In fact, the first time I ever heard about Paul, somebody said, if I was going to die, I think Alex Raj, they all used to work together for Colin Averas at the Tasty Room, said that about Paul. Paul is, Paul can make anything and cook anything. So I would have him on the list as well. I'd probably ask Anamoto, uh, Anamoto-san in Japan for, for him to cook. I mean, there's a lot of sushi chefs, but I'd ask him to do it for me because I think he gets the best fucking fish. So... That would be three, four. I would ask Moro Colagreco of Mentone because I've seen him cook. And that guy can cook his fucking ass off. And that allows me to get the Passard. Oh, now I fucked up. I already said it. I'm going to stick with it. I can't. I'm, I'm trying to get different schools. So I can't go Pascal Barbo, but what I was, or Tatiana Leva. There's a lot of people in that Passard school. That I would choose, but I don't know why I chose Moro. Besides Moro fucking being a badass. So I got Moro. I got Paul. No, I am. I'm going to change up Moro. I'm going to change her out, change him out with Tatiana Leva. I think Tatiana Leva is one of the best, best cooks I've ever fucking seen. She could do it all. She makes insanely good food. She's in Paris, Servan, and she has another restaurant. I think Double Dragon. She's unbelievable at cooking and a fantastic chef. So that allows me to get that sort of school done i'm missing italian i'm gonna change it up i'm going rodney scott i want i want his whole hog barbecue so that's it you could ask me this every every day and i'd have a different answer but today i got rodney scott bringing his whole hog barbecue and his chicken wings which are i think the best chicken wings in america i got tatiana levha coming from paris i have paul carmichael coming from australia I got Dr. Nawab from America. Anamoto-san. Anamoto, yeah. From Japan. Oh. I feel really good about that. That'd be really delicious. <laughs> yeah. I'm going with that. Sounds great. Give us five stars, uh, however you rate this, and uh, we'll come back to you next week with a podcast with Chris Yang. <laughs> <laughs>